A Japan Airlines 747 is doing a flight from Tokyo to Osaka when disaster strikes. What caused this plane to lose control and crash into mountains mid-flight, making this the worst single aircraft accident in history? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome back. You know, we don't have much uh, information beyond that, frankly. No new patrons. Check out the Patreon. Be a patron. Submit your stories. Submit your story. We have no stories for August. Still. (laughs) So we might have to move it to September because we have no stories for August. And check out the merch. Okay. Okay. I think I think that's it. Okay. Which is good, because we need as much time as possible. Because what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Japan Airlines Flight 123. Thank you to Chris. Thanks, Chris. For recommending this episode. Woot, woot. I would like to preface this as this is a big one. This is arguably the other big one. Yes, and it is also a conglomeration of a bunch of other concepts we've covered before. You might think of it as the Avengers of our podcast, or the <laughs> crossover of Power Rangers of our podcast, because we're going to talk about a lot. Yeah. So, fasten your seatbelts, put them tray tables up, we're going for a ride. Toot toot. That Oops. was not the right. <laughs> <laughs> but whoop, whoop. I tried. Whoop, whoop. Pull up. This happened on August 12th of 1985. This was a 747-100 with the tail number Juliet Alpha 8119er. You know, Japan. Japan. This was a flight from Tokyo Haneda International Airport to Osaka, Japan. This is a short flight. Yes, quite. Yes. It's a short flight for a big bird. Yes. We'll get to that in a minute. The captain for the flight was Misami Takahama. He was 49 years old. He had 12,400 hours total, of which 4,850 hours were on the 747, so pretty experienced. The first officer for the flight was Yutaka Sasaki. He was 39 years old. He had 4,000 hours total, of which 2,650 hours were on the 747, so the majority of his hours were on the 747. Then there was the flight engineer, Hitoshi Fukuda. He's 46 years old. He had 9,800 hours total, of which 3,850 hours were on the 747. So everyone's pretty experienced. Yep, pretty experienced, pretty normal across the board. The captain was seated in the right seat in the cockpit for this flight, as he was serving as the training captain for the first officer who was training to be a captain for the 747. And was sitting in the left seat. So he was seated in the left seat, right. Well, that makes sense. Yep. The flight engineer had been on duty for the previous two flights with this airplane, but the captain and first officer had just begun their shifts for this flight in particular. The flight was to be short at just 54 minutes, but the flight was nearly full with 509 passengers Wow! and 15 crew members. Keep forgetting how many people 47s can carry. A lot. Well, and this is a... Particularly special configured 747? Yes, this was actually technically a 747SR-100. So it was intended to be super high capacity. So there was 509 passengers and 15 crew members on their way to Osaka, many of which were traveling for the Oban 
holiday in Japan, which sees many people traveling to their hometowns to honor the spirits of their ancestors. The previous flight for the plane had landed at Haneda at 5.12 p.m. and parked at spot 18 at Haneda at 5.17 p.m., at which time the crew change occurred and the passengers and cargo were changed out. The flight plan was then submitted for the flight to Osaka for an instrument flight rules flight plan at a cruising speed of 467 knots at 24,000 feet for a flight time of 54 minutes, but they had 3 hours and 15 minutes of fuel on board. The aircraft was pushed back from spot 18 and began taxiing at 6.04 p.m. The flight took off at 6.12 p.m. from runway 15 left at Haneda. 6.24 p.m. in 35 seconds, the airplane was climbing toward its cruising altitude of 24,000 feet and was getting close to leveling off when an enormous boom is heard and felt throughout the aircraft. At the time, the aircraft was over the Pacific Ocean, but approaching the east coast of the South Itsu Peninsula. Immediately after, one of the flight crew stated, Buck 77, which means 7700 on the transponder. This is one of the emergency codes. Anything that starts with 77, and then there's usually two numbers that follow that mean different things. Anything that starts with 77 is an emergency code. This is how they talk to air traffic control without actually talking to air traffic control. This shows up as an emergency on air traffic control's radar. So a 7700 is a generic emergency. It just means that the airplane is in distress. Pops up on the radar as an airplane in distress. They usually get a warning. So ATC knows there's an airplane in distress. 6.25 p.m. and 21 seconds. The captain made a transmission to the air traffic controller requesting a descent to 22,000 and a return to Haneda. At 6.15 p.m. and 40 seconds, the flight crew then requested vectors to Oshima. It's just a point. The air traffic controller responded requesting which direction the flight wanted to turn in order for this maneuver to be carried out in the return to Haneda. The captain responded that they wanted to do a right turn. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn right to 090 degrees. This was acknowledged by the flight crew at 6.25 p.m. and 52 seconds. The airplane was making the right turn, but suddenly stopped before making the full turn to 090 degrees, instead crossing directly over the Itsu Peninsula, heading generally northwestbound. Around this time, the airplane began climbing and falling very rapidly in an apparent fugoid pattern, as well as a Dutch roll, rolling left and right. So, a fugoid, we've talked about in the past, but this is a repetitive climb and descent that airplanes can find themselves in where they will climb until they lose airspeed and the, the nose starts to dip then it will descend until it picks up enough speed that the the nose it's an naturally oscillation lifts oscillation pattern so yeah, yeah it's an oscillation pattern but it's due to these this airspeed change so the airspeed change changes the lift over the wings and the nose will either drop if it loses too much airspeed or it'll raise if it gains too much airspeed so this is a fugoid pattern. And it's, we say oscillation, but it's a pretty slow oscillation. It takes it about a minute to do a full cycle usually. Yes, or more depending on the circumstances. But yes, and then they were doing a Dutch roll, which is a roll left and right with the wings, but it also involves a yaw left and right at the same time. It's uncomfortable. It is. It's kind of hard for us to describe, but if you look up on Wikipedia, there's a really good animation just on the wikipedia page of what a dutch roll is yes 
Both of these phenomena occurred for the remainder of the flight, as the flight engineer reported to the captain and first officer that they had lost all hydraulic pressure, which means that they were losing control of their airplane. So, as of yet, what does this sound like? UA-232? Yeah. 6.27 p.m. in two seconds, the air traffic controller requested confirmation of the emergency. The flight crew did not respond to this message. By this time, the air traffic controller had noticed the airplane behaving in an abnormal manner, and at 6.28 p.m. in 31 seconds, instructed them to again to turn to 090 degrees. The flight crew came back with a chilling response. Quote, now uncontrollable, end quote. They had no control over their airplane. By this time, the passenger cabin was chaotic, with crews scrambling to help passengers as the oxygen masks had dropped from the overhead compartments. Something was wrong with the oxygen supply at the back of the airplane, however, and many passengers were beginning to be hypoxic because their masks were not providing oxygen. Uh-oh. The crew had to use portable oxygen tanks to provide some of the passengers with enough oxygen until they could descend low enough to breathe. The flight crew, meantime, discussed donning their oxygen masks at one point, but they never did. It's undetermined why they didn't, but it may have been a consequence of hypoxia. So they have a cabin depressurization then? Yes, they're having a cabin depressurization of some kind, but the uh, flight crew didn't seem to know that. Foreshadowing. They never mentioned that phrase in the entire flight. Yes, the flight crew never said anything about a depressurization. They did talk about putting on their oxygen masks anyway, and they weren't doing any kind of emergency descent yet. So it's undetermined why they didn't actually put on the oxygen masks after discussing it and agreeing that they should, but they never did. The aircraft crossed over Suruga Bay and then passed north over Yatsu City at about 6.30 p.m. The flight then turned further north at 6.31 p.m. At about the same time, the air traffic controller asked, quote, can you descend? End quote. The captain responded, now descending at 6.31 p.m. in seven seconds, reporting that their altitude was still 24,000 feet. At 6.31 p.m. in 17 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the crew that they were only 72 nautical miles from Nagoya and asked if they could land at the Nagoya airport. The flight crew responded that they still wanted to return to Haneda. At 6.31 p.m. and 26 seconds, the air traffic controller suggested communicating in Japanese for easier communication, and the flight crew acknowledged this suggestion and agreed. So they actually switched over their communication mostly to Japanese so that they could better communicate. 6.35 p.m., the aircraft was still in a constant fugoid and was in a right turn at a point about 35 kilometers west of Mount Fuji, turning eastward. So they were kind of turning toward the mountain. 6.38 p.m., the flight turned to the left while it was only 7 kilometers north-northwest of Mount Fuji for a northeastward flight path. At approximately 6.41 p.m., the flight began descending from 21,000 feet over Otsuki City. Because the flight had no hydraulic pressure, the flight controls were deemed useless. The only control that the crew had at all by this point was their engines, which they were using to control and counteract the pitch, the fugoid pitch changes, as well as used to turn the plane using asymmetric power. Also sound really familiar? That's from UA-232 as well. As well as the 2003 DHL attempted shoot-down. Yes, that one too. They descended down to about 17,000 feet while doing a 360-degree turn to the right, 
over the course of three minutes. The airplane then continued eastward, descending rapidly. At 6.45 p.m. and 46 seconds, the flight crew transmitted, quote, aircraft uncontrollable, end quote, then turned left toward the northeast. 6.47 p.m. and 7 seconds, the flight crew requested radar vectors to Haneda again. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to, quote, maintain heading 090, Haneda active runway 22, end quote, which was acknowledged by the crew. But they still never made that turn to 090. So, okay, stop real quick, because mm -hmm. if they don't have hydraulics, mm -hmm. how are they turning the aircraft? Engines. Engines. Asymmetric oh. power. Yeah, okay. Yep. 6.47 p.m. and 17 seconds, the air traffic controller asked if the aircraft was un was controllable, to which the crew simply replied, quote, uncontrollable, end quote. So, no. <laughs> so, no. Because this was only a short while, a few minutes after they had already said the aircraft's not controllable. 6.48 p.m., the aircraft made a left turn at 7,000 feet over Okutama Town and flew west-northwest, gradually climbing again, still in a fugoid. The flight reached about 13,000 feet at 6.53 p.m. before beginning to descend again, at which time the crew again transmitted, quote, uncontrollable, end quote, 6.53 and 31 seconds. 6.54 p.m. and 19 seconds, the flight switched over to Tokyo approach control at an altitude of 11,000 feet and descending. 6.54 p.m. and 25 seconds, the flight requested its location from the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller responded that they were 55 miles northwest of Haneda and 25 nautical miles west of Kumagaya, which was acknowledged by the crew at 6.54 p.m. and 55 seconds. Ten seconds later, the air traffic controller transmitted that both Haneda and Yokota were available. So Yokota, we'll, we'll talk about here in a moment, but Yokota is a... Air Force Base. Air Force Base. For the United States. Yep. They were both available for landing which the crew acknowledged. This was the last time that the flight would be, ever be heard from. And while all this was going on with the air traffic controller on Tokyo approach and all that, actually the Yokota controller was listening to everything. He is an Air Force controller, and he was also trying to contact the flight, get in contact with them at times when it seemed difficult, and he never actually talked to them directly. But since he was listening to everything, he had prepped the Air Force guys to do a search and rescue as needed. People in the mountainous region around Okutama watched as the plane flew over low and slow with the landing gear lowered as it flew by in a slightly nose-up attitude before making an abrupt right turn around Mount Senpei, which is at an elevation of 1,700 meters. Then it flew northwest toward Mount Mikuni, which is at an elevation of 1,828 meters. As it passed the mountain, the aircraft suddenly plunged down in a left bank before dipping out of sight behind the mountain. The aircraft struck a few trees on a ridge about 1,530 meters above the ground, above sea level, followed by another much heavier strike to a ridge at 1,610 meters with one of the wings which ripped from the airplane, destroying many trees with it. So one of the wings ripped off on a ridge. The rest of the airplane traveled a further 570 meters northwest until it impacted heavily into a mountainside at 1,565 meters above the ocean, above sea level. 
The crash occurred at 6.56 p.m. 20 minutes after the crash, a nearby U.S. Air Force C-130 radioed to the air traffic controller at Yokota the location of the wreckage as they were the first to spot the wreckage from the sky. Night was beginning to set, which made it difficult to locate the wreck from there. A helicopter was was dispatched. This is a Japan self-defense helicopter. It's their equivalent of the Air Force. So this helicopter was dispatched, and they came upon the wreckage, but opted not to land, as they could not see any good locations to land in the dark. The helicopter pilot reported that there was no sign of survivors. Now, they couldn't see much, because they were in the dark, but they were hovering low over the wreckage, and they could see all the flames and everything. They couldn't see any movement, so they couldn't see any survivors. And another contributing factor to why they decided not to land was it was like a 45-degree slope. Yes. You can't land a helicopter on that. You can hover, but not land. No. So this was not the ideal place to land. It's not the ideal situation for them to try to land or anything. So they left the wreckage. So they left the wreckage. Without trying any further to search for survivors. That's not great. Ground rescue crews opted not to travel to the crash site that night because of this observation for their own safety, as there was a dense forest to climb through to get to the crash site, which was perilous in the dark. And it was also assumed that nobody had survived. So by that point, they were like, okay, well, if nobody survived, then there's not a whole lot of use in us going up there tonight. We just need to prep for recovery once daylight comes around. Which, again, isn't great because you don't know unless unless you're there. Well, and it turns out. Get into that. (laughs) They set up a makeshift village of tents to serve as a command center as well as helipads and all this about... 63 kilometers or 39 miles away from the crash site. So pretty far away, in reality. Yeah. The next morning, ground crews set out to the crash site to start sifting through the wreckage for bodies. When crews arrived, they began finding bodies strewn throughout the wreckage and recovering them. Suddenly, one of the rescuers came across a woman who was amazingly alive. She was an off-duty flight attendant for Japan Airlines that had been on the flight as a passenger at the back of the plane. She would later go on to tell her story as she helped the flight attendants to do their job while they were going through the emergency. She was helping people get their their masks on and just helping people in general. Shortly after she was found, a 12-year-old girl was found alive in a tree. Both were airlifted with severe injuries. Two more further survivors, a woman and her 8-year-old daughter, were also found alive. All four of the survivors had been seated in the last seven rows of the airplane, in the back. Rescuers reported that many of the bodies that were found of people who likely survived the crash, but later died from shock or exposure to the elements overnight. So the flight, the off-duty flight attendant later reported that she was alive and awake when the helicopter came by and so were a lot of other people and they were all screaming for the helicopter to come land and then slowly throughout the night all the other voices died off literally yep see that's why you don't just assume you have to get there to make sure that if people are alive right because there would have been a lot more survivors that you get them out yeah we'll get into this but there's a lot of things that went behind that There could have been a higher number of survivors had rescuers made it to the crash site on the night of the crash, but they didn't. In all, 520 people, including all 15 crew members, perished in the accident, while four passengers survived with serious injuries. The Miraculous Four. 
This was the deadliest single aircraft accident in aviation history. And remains so today. And hopefully it always will. It doesn't get any worse, hopefully. I mean, it was pretty bad. That's awful. So, yeah. there's, there's a bang. There's a bang. So, what, 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 what? So, this investigation was performed by the Aircraft Accident Investigation Commission with the aid of Boeing, the airplane manufacturer, the FAA, who originally certified the aircraft, and the NTSB as an additional relevant investigative authority. All of those American editions I just listed actually had quite a hard time being able to access the scene as the Japanese police were in charge of the scene and treated it like a crime scene and treated the Americans as suspicious parties. Even though they had nothing to do with what happened? They don't know that yet. It took two days before they were able to have access to the site, and even then it was only with strict supervision. I assume this, like, the Japanese thought that like Boeing would try to cover something up. Oh, okay. Well, Boeing wasn't the one doing the investigation, trying to help, though, right? It was the NTSB. No, Boeing was there. Boeing oh. was there, too. Well, and Boeing, Boeing's not usually the one that covers stuff up. It's usually, like, the airline. One of the NTSB investigators recalled working on the site while Chinook helicopters flew overhead with the victims' families dropping flowers over the scene. The families had also built shrines where they had climbed up the mountain on foot, and eventually many of them were able to take possession of the many notes that were found in the wreckage from the crash victims, either while the plane was still in the air or as they lay dying in the cold. Investigators did have some initial clues as to the accident. Based on the erratic flight path, it is safe to assume that there was something wrong with the controls, but they didn't report any engine problems and they still seemed to have power, so the engines don't seem to be the source of the issue. One of the first things investigators thought to look at was actually based off of radio transmissions that they overheard from the crew regarding the R5 door. The flight engineer in the background had mentioned a problem with the R5 door. Yes. That's not mentioned in the story anywhere, which is why I didn't put it in there, but yes. What if the R5 door, which is the rearmost door on the right side, had blown off and hit the tail where both pitch and yaw controls, meaning the elevator and the rudder, are located? This idea was quickly defeated when they found that very door amidst the wreckage. But that's not to say that something didn't go wrong in the tail. Something caused whatever warning the flight engineer saw about door R5. Soon in the investigation, an amateur photographer came forward with a blurry picture of the plane during its loss of control. It took quite a bit of advanced techniques, but investigators were able to enhance the photo enough to show that for sure something was wrong. Miranda, what do you see wrong with this photo? There's a hole. Not or that. what looks like a hole. That's just a light. An engine's missing? Nope. What? Something's missing. Something is distinctly very much missing. I don't know. What's the white thing in the middle of the plane? It's a light. Oh. Yeah, that doesn't have anything to do with it. There's no vertical stabilizer. Oh, I can't really tell from that blurry <laughs> picture. Well, I mean, it would... Because it kind of looks like it right there. If you More than half of it's gone. Oh, well, I, I wouldn't know unless I saw a picture. Enough, like, that there's, enough that there's barely anything left in the picture. A Japanese naval ship came across some wreckage in Sagami Bay, right about where the crew made their initial emergency call. Because they came across some wreckage floating in the water. What specifically? Tail parts, like portions of the vertical stabilizer and some bits of aft fuselage. Yikes. 
So something definitely happened in the tale. Investigators went into the maintenance logs to figure out if anything had happened in the past that might be some indicator of a problem. Get ready for some serious deja vu. Seven years earlier, the plane had an incident. It had a tail strike, which is what happens when a plane rotates too much on takeoff or flares too much on landing and the tail strikes and drags on the runway. In the course of the tail strike, multiple things were damaged and had to be repaired, including the underside of the fuselage and tail section, as well as the aft pressure bulkhead. What does this sound like? China Airlines. Flight 611. Episode 7. With the Yak Man. With the Yak Man. The Yak Man! So I mentioned the aft pressure bulkhead. This is a huge dome in the back of the plane that is very strong because it fights the pressurization forces that make the cabin breathable for passengers. The pressure differential it has to endure is around 8 to 9 pounds per square inch. So investigators began reconstructing the aft wreckage, mostly the structure, though there were limitations on this as many pieces of metal were just unidentifiable. They found that most of the damage was to the right side and underneath the fuselage, especially below the R5 door, which makes sense given the warning the flight engineer was getting, and the panels that the aft pressure bulkhead was attached to. Well, that's suspicious. No kidding. There's the reconstruction. The pictures are really crappy. Yeah, the pictures are awful in this report. When was this crash from? 85. Oh, well, that's probably why. Yeah. The aft pressure bulkhead was seemingly blown backward, with the fracture starting near the R5 door, then around to the L10 joint. When the tail strike happened, Japan Airlines consulted with Boeing on how to repair such a thing, and Boeing designed and implemented a fairly large-scale repair. They removed the lower half of the bulkhead and attached a replacement half, attaching it first to the fuselage and then to the upper half of the bulkhead. When the work was completed, an inspector found that the margin between the edge and rivets was less than what was required, so a rework was done to add a splice panel between the two halves of the bulkhead. I'm going to describe this as best as I can, though we do have pictures on the website. There are 36 stiffening ribs that go through the bulkhead. If you think of the bulkhead as a spider web, right? There are four rings going out from the center, and then 36 lines or spokes that go all the way around and through the rings. When looking at the bulkhead from the back of the plane, or from the aft, the ribs are labeled L1 at the top through L36 at the bottom, and then on the right side, R1 through R36. Make sense? Yes. So L18 is the completely horizontal rib. Got it. The way the work was directed and designed was to have the splice plate layered between the two halves of the bulkhead. The first row of rivets would go through the L18 rib, the splice plate, and the upper half of the bulkhead. The second row of rivets go between the lower half of the bulkhead, the splice plate, and the upper half of the bulkhead. Below those two rows, another row of rivets goes through just the lower half of the bulkhead and the splice panel. Any questions? No. Okay. But that isn't what investigators found in the wreckage. They found that the splice plate wasn't one solid piece of metal, but rather two. The first piece was riveted along the first row of rivets on top. L18 stiffening rib, smaller splice plate, upper bulkhead. It was essentially just a spacer between the rib and the upper bulkhead. Then the larger splice plate went between the lower two rows. Why is this a problem? 
By not having one continuous splice plate go between all of the rivets, the load is transmitted through only one row of rivets instead of two. There is a, sent there is a good picture on our website that shows the load transmission in both scenarios. Essentially, only one row of rivets is doing all the work and having to bear the load of pressurizing the cabin with every flight instead of two rows of rivets. Yeah, it seems a little weird they wouldn't use just one big piece of metal. Especially because they made the piece of metal from the old bulkhead. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, and we've talked about, uh, what's it called? What are they called? The things doublers. that cover... Doublers, right? And this, the is, whole... this is kind of similar, but we actually called Nick's dad about this. I'm like, please explain this to me. A doubler goes over the skin yeah. where, uh, to keep it together, whereas a splice plate joins together two pieces of skin. Does that make sense? Yeah. It goes between the two rather than covering it. It just seems weird that they would use two different pieces of metal than just one. Like, and investigators were never really able to determine why they did this. There was no documentation that they did this. Boeing didn't have any documentation? Nope. Uh, they said okay. that they did it correctly. Yeah, that seems just dumb, but whatever. So, again, it's having to bear the load of every pressurization of the cabin. On that note, um, I don't know how well you can see, but here it shows the way the load is supposed to be split between the two rivets. Yeah. And this one shows it's one pack. I know. It's just, it just does not seem right. No, it it's doesn't. It's not. <laughs> yeah. So, as I was saying, it's having to bear the load of pressurizing the cabin with every flight. On that note, the cabin is pressurized with every flight. So every flight is transmitting a load on and off multiple times a day. This kind of loading is called cyclic loading. And what does that eventually lead to? Fatigue. There we go. Yep. Welcome back to the fatigue podcast. <laughs> Investigators found fatigue cracks propagating from the middle row of rivets using an electron microscope, of which we have pictures on our website where you can see these striations. Even with the really crappy scanning, you can see the striations. You can still see the yeah. layers. We're just going to go through these real quick so you can see them. There you go. Striations. Ta-da! Striations are found at the microscopic level, but each little line is a single flight cycle's loading of pressurization. Investigators performed an analysis to determine how strong one method of repair was versus the other. And because this isn't a simple design, they had to do so through finite element analysis, which I've also talked about before. I don't know which episode, but I did. Multiple. FEA. FEA. I took a whole class. It's great. Basically, using a computer, they broke down the more complicated model into many teeny tiny but simply shaped parts or elements. So we're talking like cubes or triangles or something like that. Right. Something you can do easy math with. Yes. And they had a computer do math thousands of thousands of times over, but through much simpler equations to determine how much loading one method of repair could take over the other. Through this analysis, investigators found that the rate of propagation of fatigue cracks was more than twice as fast in the one row of attachment rivets versus two, and that it would have taken around 10,000 flight cycles to reach critical crack length, which is the point at which the fatigue crack is long enough that the whole part just fails catastrophically in overload because it can't take it anymore. This plane had 12,318 flight cycles since the faulty repair, so it's a miracle that it lasted as long as it did. Both Boeing and Japan Airlines had inspected this repair and signed off on it, as well as the Civil Aviation Bureau, which is essentially the FAA of Japan. 
Investigators deemed that their inspection methods were thorough and determined that the fault probably wasn't detectable because of the fillet seal that was in place as part of the repair. As for why this wasn't caught in subsequent inspections, well, the work cards during a C-check focused more on the outer edge of the bulkhead, and there was no special attention for splices like the one that had been implemented, and it would have just received an overall visual inspection. Investigators were unable to conclude whether or not the fatigue cracks would have been detectable during a visual inspection during any of the seven C-checks since the repair. Now for the estimated sequence of the failure. This faulty repair method wasn't done across the entire bulkhead. I mentioned that there are four concentric rings, or straps, through the bulkhead, as they are called. This makes five spaces between the rings. We'll call those bays, and number them from out to in, bays one through five. The faulty one-row riveting only occurred in bays two and three. The other bays all had the correct repair method done. Why? I don't know. The fatigue crack started on the upper side of the rivets, as that side was subjected to tension, and they reached critical crack length and bays 2 and 3 failed. Then the ring, or strap between them, strap number 2, fractured. Then the surrounding bays, 1 and 4, fractured, followed by the first, third, and fourth straps, then bay 5, then the entire rib just failed. This all happened in quick succession, and the pressurized air of the cabin blew aftward into the tail. Okay, real quick, I'm going to say this in here. The last episode in this episode, you might hear the dog whining. He's fine. He just is sad because he can't be up here because he's being naughty. Yep. So he's fine. Don't worry about it. I just want to let you know in case it's not edited out. The dog is just being dramatic. Okay, yep. please continue. The air rushed into the vertical fin, and the excessive internal pressure ruptured the structure and compromised the vertical fin and ruptured it from the plane. So this is the part that's crazy to me, is they're saying literally the pressure that was in the cabin rushed out through the back bulkhead, up the tail, and basically just blew it out. And exploded the vertical stabilizer. It just exploded it away from the airplane. Well, I'll get to it in a second. All four hydraulic systems ran to the rudder's power control package. And fractured when the rudder went bye-bye. All four hydraulic systems oh, failed. Oh, so the rudder wasn't working either. The rudder's gone. The rudder was gone, along with all four hydraulic systems. So it's a bad day. Wow. The, this rush of air also ruptured the APU firewall, blowing out the whole tail cone section. This whole failure happened in about 0.3 to 0.4 seconds. So it was literally an explosion. Just air. No combustion, just pressurized air. That's just crazy. Wow. Investigators then performed an analysis of what control would have looked like assuming the top third-ish of the vertical stabilizer was gone, the whole rudder was gone, and the whole tail cone section was gone. Those are their assumptions. It's pretty accurate, I would think. Part of the function of these now missing parts is to prevent a fugoid, the oscillating pitch up and down movement that the plane definitely experienced. With these parts gone, there is initially nothing to prevent this motion. Another oscillation that occurred is, as Nick mentioned, a Dutch roll, which is an oscillation in both roll and yaw. Again, Ugh. look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. It looks uncomfortable. It just sounds uncomfortable. Well, experiencing a yaw in a plane is uncomfortable, as you and I experienced with Brendan. I can't imagine doing that repetitively in a 47. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
This is also normally prevented by the rudder, but a uh, lack of rudder means lack of damping of the Dutch roll motion. To make matters worse, the blowout of the tail definitely took all hydraulic power, a foreshadowing of what might happen with UA-232 four years later as well as the 2003 DHL flight, meaning that nothing is controlling the elevator, which makes the fugoid even more prominent or excited, since it's an oscillation pattern. Investigators pointed out two ways in which a fugoid could be dampened or countered. One is with flaps. Given that, A, there's no hydraulics, but B, the flaps move slower than the fugoid, this is not really a viable option. This left the option that the crew eventually realized, and that UA-232 and the DHL flight both used successfully, which is to counter the fugoid with engine power. Quote, It is theoretically possible to stabilize the fugoid mode, which is brought into existence due to a loss of longitudinal attitude control by operating the thrust lever. It does not mean that the task is easy for a pilot to accomplish. End quote. You don't say. <laughs> the only control the pilots would have had over the Dutch roll excitation was the ailerons, which they did have for about a minute before those two failed. And, quote, suppressing of Dutch roll mode by use of the differential thrust between the right and left engines is estimated to be practically impossible for a pilot. End quote. So it just wasn't going to happen. And I'm, they never really did control the Dutch roll. So the passengers were experiencing that the entire time. Yeah. That's Which, mind horrifying. you, I know we didn't really make this clear, but was over 30 minutes. Oh, no. Oh, if yeah. you had been paying attention to my timeline, it was over 30 minutes this airplane was flying from the time it lost the tail to the time it hit the mountain. Ooh. 30 Ooh. minutes of this fugoid and Dutch roll. I'm kind of surprised they lasted that long. It was pretty incredible, actually. We'll talk about that later. Multiple simulations were attempted under varying circumstances to see if there was any way this flight would have not ended in catastrophe. To answer it bluntly, no simulation was ever successful in landing on a runway, and no water landing was below 200 knots, with the possibility of surviving being quote-unquote hardly expected. And as a matter of fact, none of the simulations were able to make it 30 minutes. Hmm. Which is pretty incredible that they did, but I mean, They also. said it was... An incredible flying feat that they made it over 30 minutes. But. Given their actions, which I'll get to in a second, I'm surprised they made it 30 minutes. Investigators did have one note that I would like to mention. By one note, I mean like a section of notes. Give me a second. Yeah. Many aspects of aircraft have built-in fail-safes, and this includes the aft pressure bulkhead. The built-in failsafe was actually structures I already mentioned, the concentric straps and the stiffening ribs. The design was based on the idea that a crack would start and be noticed during an inspection while it was still contained in one bay, surrounded by ribs and straps preventing its propagation into more bays. What the engineers didn't count on with this failsafe was having cracks in more than one adjacent bay. The one-bay crack system can withstand a pressure differential of up to 9.4 PSI, more than the plane had encountered at the time of failure, but again, the accident aircraft had cracks in multiple bays, making it much weaker. Now for another fail-safe. This one was a pressure relief door that was implemented after the pressure bulkhead, so that in the event that the bulkhead does fail, the pressure relief door regulates the area so that the pressure differential doesn't exceed 1.5 PSI. The problem with this flight? Well, the bulkhead didn't just fail in one crack. It was a 32-square-foot section of bulkhead gone. Which is insane. 
It's an explosion. The relief door couldn't handle that significant of a pressure differential. So there goes that failsafe. Now for the one I was definitely invested in, the control systems. The failsafe design of the four hydraulic systems was just that. There are four of them and they're redundant. They cover parts of each other. And there are a total of 10 hydraulic pumps. But they all happen to run to one part of the plane. The rudder! The rudder. The failsafe design did not account for the in-flight rupture and separation of the entire rudder, obviously. It turns out that that's a recurring theme in aviation, that they're always thinking, oh, we'll send them all four through one spot. There's no possible way that one spot could ever have a problem. Okay, listen. (laughs) I think we've covered enough by now, even by 1985, that you're like, really, Boeing, really, really? Well, and UA-232 still hadn't happened at this point yet. I didn't specifically write this, so I would like to bring it up. You might recall that, I think his name was Fitch. Yes, okay. So, Dennis Fitch was the training check airman on board of UA-232. And the reason that he knew how to control that plane was because he studied this flight. He studied Japan Airlines 123, trying to figure out a way to control it without hydraulics. Yep. That is the only reason that UA-232 did so well in regard to how it went relatively i guess is the term i'm looking for is because he was able to study this event true now for one aspect that i haven't really talked about at all the crew the crew immediately recognized the structural failure obviously since the captain said something exploded and they squawked the emergency transponder code what they didn't react to was the depressurization not once was that phrase ever uttered and no call-out was made for the appropriate depressurization checklist. They mentioned making an emergency descent, but a depressurization is a big deal, not just for the passengers, but also for the crew. Hypoxia is not just a subject to glance over, and they seem to do just that. You might recall from the Helios flight that we covered that yep. you can have a ghost plane if you just ignore hypoxia. You can refer to that episode for all of the effects of hypoxia, specifically in terms of time and how exactly it impairs your behavior and judgment. It will be linked on the website. The crew continued at over 20,000 feet for 18 minutes without pressurization and didn't make an emergency descent to 10,000 feet, as is common. Practice when you lose pressure. Yep. But rather just requested clearance down to 22,000 feet. Yes, they were focused on controlling the plane. Fly the plane. But you also have to take into consideration your own risk of hypoxia. They did eventually speak of donning their oxygen masks, but never actually put them on as determined by the sound of their voices on the CBR. And no one, not even investigators, were able to determine why they didn't just put them on. Yeah, it's a little weird. It's so strange. I mean, I can't believe that they didn't have any kind of indication in the cockpit. I know this is an old 747, but I can't believe they didn't have anything. Even on the flight engineer's panel that told them there was a depressurization problem. I know. The whole thing seems weird. Even when he said there's a problem with the R5 door, you should think depressurization. Yeah, and immediately think, okay, we should put on our oxygen mask and do it right this second. So the best guess is that hypoxia had already taken such an effect that they just forgot to that they even spoke about masks as they were talking about it. The crew insisted on returning to Tokyo International, despite the fact that Nagoya was right there. It is assumed this was because of the favorable runway length at Haneda and emergency facilities, but the logical goal should have been the closest airport given the extent of the emergency. They were also already lined up for its runway. Right. 
But they didn't know any of that. I mean, they didn't have any idea how bad it was. No. Investigators determined that it should have been possible to turn the plane using asymmetric engine thrust, and this seemingly was attempted, but again, they never actually turned in the direction that they were instructed to. Yeah. So, hypoxia? Question mark? That makes the most sense. To me, yes. Additionally, it was determined that the extent of concentration and focus required to acquire and or maintain control of the plane was so great that the crew was not able to make sound and pertinent judgment on how to cope with the situation. And I think that the air traffic controllers also thought they were hypoxic, and I think that's why they told them to start communicating in Japanese. Yeah. Because I think they noticed that in English they were getting really hard to understand. Well, but what what's hink- so this particular point is hinky to me as far as them not being able to make sound and pertinent decisions because they were so focused on controlling the plane. Yeah. Like, yes, fly the plane, but you can't fly the plane if you're unconscious. Right. right. So you need to be able to prioritize being conscious in order to fly the plane. Yes, fly the plane is what you are trained to do main- and primarily while you're in an emergency. But to do that, you need to be awake. Exactly. So I'll get off my soapbox and that's all I get. All right, we're going to take a quick break, break, and we'll be back with all the stuff you normally hear on the other half of the episode. It's a lot, y'all. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're going to do what they call conclusions, which is... So, findings. Findings, basically. Yeah, it's kind of different, though, because it's more like a summary of everything they talk about in the analysis and everything. So, I kind of had to uh, pick and choose here, because it's six pages of stuff. So, I picked and chose what I thought was worth mentioning in their their conclusions. They concluded that repairs for damage caused by the accident at Osaka International Airport were not conducted correctly. So, the repairs, literally, to the bulk Were just not head, done, which is so weird. so incorrect. Because Boeing was the one who did it, and I yeah. just don't get it. Yep. So, specifically, they said it is acknowledged to have been proper that the repair work related to structures of the aircraft was accomplished by the Boeing company for Japan Airlines by the contract, because the aircraft was manufactured by the company, etc. So... Boeing did all this, but it wasn't done right. No, which, again, really weird. They concluded that the repair plan of the aircraft was agreed on between Japan Airlines and Boeing Company, and is considered to have been proper in general, so the agreement was correct, but that there was problems with it. So they said, when the lower half of the aft pressure bulkhead deformed by the accident was removed and was being replaced by the new one in accordance with the repair plan, it was found that there were locations where the edge margin around the rivet holes at the splices, the L18 splice, of the upper and the lower webs of the aft pressure bulkhead was less than drawing requirements. This is considered to have been caused by somewhat insufficient concern against deformation of the aft fuselage in the repair work of the aft pressure bulkhead. So, basically, they did the repair, and they were kind of like, hmm, something didn't go right. But, eh, it looks like it'll work. 
No. It didn't. It may work for a couple flight cycles, and then something like this happens. Yeah, it worked. And then the entire tail blows off. It worked for 12,000 flight cycles, but still, ugh. That's not as much as it was supposed to last. They included that for the above, so the last one, the last uh, thing I read. The corrective measure to make a splice joint by inserting a splice plate between webs of the upper half and the lower half of the F-pressure bulkhead, which is considered as proper, was planned. But during the repair, improper work was conducted, which differentiated from the corrective measure. So this is translated, by the way, and I'm having to kind of correct some things along the way, so mind me. Uh, It says one splice plate was narrower than the drawing requirements, and one filler was applied instead of one splice plate. So the filler really doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. It really doesn't. It doesn't do the same thing as one plate. I don't understand why they use two and one would be cheaper and i don't know it, it doesn't make sense to me why they decided to use two and not one none of it made any sense like did a... you did you not have a big enough one to cover it like i don't i don't quite understand yeah right so it just doesn't make sense christy said they made it from the old bulkhead yeah <laughs> which just doesn't make any sense it doesn't they also said that they concluded in the inspections during and after the repair work the aforementioned improper part of the work could not be found so even though they did the work wrong, it was inspected and should have been found. But then the inspection didn't find the problem. So it was kind of like, what was the point of the inspection? It didn't match the drawing and things, they didn't do the work right. So there should have been big red flags during the inspection. But the reason that inspectors didn't find it was because of its design alone. You can only inspect it from the aft. Right. And it was filleted shut and the entire thing was covered Period. You couldn't see that there was a split in the splice plate. Right. They conclude that it is considered that the method of management for the work, including the inspection of working process, was in part insufficient in pertinency. So all around, everything was just bad. It just wasn't conducted correctly. They conclude that it is estimated that during this rework, part of the L18 splice, which should have been spliced by two row rivets, became spliced by one row of rivets with the result that the strength of this part decreased by about 70% of the strength to be obtained by the original splice method. From this, it is estimated that these portions were brought under a condition susceptible of occurrence of fatigue cracks. Again, welcome back to the fatigue podcast. Yes, that. Where we talk about cracks and fatigue. Yes. And how a good portion of accidents that happen in aircrafts have to do with Fatigue. You might say fatigue. that you're tired of it. <laughs> that was really bad. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. I'm back from dealing with the dog. It concluded that the flight hours and the number of flights, the number of landings, of the aircraft after the repairs for the accident at Osaka International Airport in June 1978 up to this accident were 16,196 hours and 12,319 cycles, respectively. So it had a quite a bit of time. Since the repair, which is why I think there wasn't a whole lot of concern about it anyways. But still, it was 70% less effective than the intended repair. Yes, and the the FAA engineer did calculate that it should have lasted 10,000 flight cycles, and it lasted over 12. Which is, I mean, it means it went beyond what it was supposed to with the way that it was repaired. But it was also supposed to have been repaired differently and been significantly more... Robust. Durable, yeah. Robust, yeah. 
They included that during this period to see maintenance, the sea check between the sea checks, a maintenance every 3,000 hours was conducted six times, at which time visual inspection was made, but fatigue cracks, which had been in existence at the rivet-connected portions of L-18 splice, were not found. This is, I'm having to do a lot of fill-in because they're missing a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, Japanese doesn't have articles. Yes. So they might not have any. I would say they definitely don't at times. The inspection method of the aft pressure bulkhead in the time of the sea maintenance might have been a proper method because it was unconceivable. Inconceivable! <laughs> at the time the said sea maintenance was conducted, that a number of fatigue cracks came into existence in this portion, provided the bulkhead was manufactured normally and repair work was done properly. Another thing that I read was that investigators were having a hard time trying to determine just how visual the fatigue cracks would be, because you also have to take into consideration the size of the rivet and right. how much the rivet itself would cover your visual inspection of the crack. Yeah. I think they said there was a percentage somewhere in there that it's anywhere between a 10 and 60% chance of actually seeing the fatigue crack, which means it is as low as 10%. Right. So there's next to no chance or up to maybe a little over 50% chance. But still, it it is all determined based on the crack length, how much that even that crack is separated. Because if it's like a fine, super fine crack, that's still hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many factors that go into it, which is ultimately why investigators really didn't put a whole lot of weight in inspectors being able to find the fatigue crack. Because there's just no way to say for sure. Right. You can't say, oh, they should have found it during maintenance. Because they don't know if they could have. Right. That's no way of knowing. They concluded that it is estimated that the inner pressure of the empennage increased by the pressurized air of the cabin flowed in through the opening of the aft pressure bulkhead. Thereby, the APU firewall was broken. And part of the empennage structure, including the APU proper, located aft of the wall, was destroyed and separated. So the APU was included in the tail cone that left. Oh, well. Yeet. Yeet. There's an APU sitting somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. They probably never recovered it. I don't think they did recover it. No, because they only recovered the tail because it was floating. Yeah, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure they never got it. I'm pretty sure they didn't either. Yay! <laughs> we don't need that, right? Nah. Nah, that's nope. fine. Let's just yeet that with all the other controllable surfaces of the tail. Um, The picture that I showed these guys earlier of the amateur photo with the tail missing there will be a picture of it on our website but it's also on the wikipedia page circled so you don't have to yeah. do the what i had to do <laughs> and go i don't know i didn't pull up that picture because i felt like it was a little too obvious but then it's fine okay but if you look at the picture like so i'm we're looking at figure 15 right the large lost portions of the vertical fin you can see there's still a little bit of the fin left not a lot, but a little bit, and that's what I was well, seeing. Well, and this this particular figure, figure 15, is what they used in the simulations to determine, like, because whenever you do anything computerized, any kind of model, you have to have boundary conditions, you have to have certain knowns in order for the computer to spit out, this is what happened. This is one of those, where they were like, we're going to put in that these parts were missing, but we don't necessarily know if these were the parts that were missing. I mean, there was some tail left 
Because I could see some tail. Yeah. Just not a lot. Just not, not a lot of it. Not much. Nothing usable. Yeah, nothing that the crew could move. Nope. It, it's just literally a piece of metal sticking up out of the back. And that's pretty much it. Okay. They conclude that it is estimated that part of the pressurized air of the passenger cabin, which flowed into the empennage, rushed into the vertical fin through the opening in the lower portion of the aft torque box of the vertical fin, thereby increasing the inner pressure of the vertical fin, and the fixture between the stringer and the rib cord in the upper half of the aft torque box was destroyed at first. It is estimated that thereafter destruction of the internal structures of the aft torque box and peel off of the skin were caused followed by separation of the upper half of the forward torque box, most of the aft torque box, the wingtip cover, etc. So, Aren't you glad I didn't read all of that? <laughs> yeah, all of this is really complicated, but all this is to say that the air rushed into the tail and, and destroyed, everything. destroyed everything. We'll talk a little bit about this actually in the recommendations, essentially recommendations, they call it something else. But they're, they have an interesting solution for this. I mean, it kind of makes sense. We'll talk about okay. it. Okay. They conclude that it is estimated that the damage to the aft torque box of the vertical fin caused separation of the rudder, and four systems of hydraulic pressure line for the rudder control system were all fractured. So this pressure not only destroyed, obviously, the tail, but the rudder and the, the hydraulic lines. That was the key, key things that were there in the vertical stabilizer. They conclude that it is considered that the aircraft was not able to continue a stable flight, and any flight as intended by the captain was difficult, and that a safe landing or a landing on the water was next to impossible. This plane was doomed the moment the aft pressure bulkhead ruptured. Yep. So the gist of that is they really didn't have a chance. I mean, it's unfortunate to say, but there was there was nothing they could do. They conclude that it is estimated that soon after the occurrence of the abnormal situation, that's which is it's really funny because they used that term throughout the entire report. As the moment the aft pressure bulkhead ruptured, they just call it the abnormal situation. Not the explosion, not the failure. Not the boom. <laughs> they call it... I would call it the boom. Yeah, right? They call it the abnormal situation throughout the entire thing. They include that it is estimated that, that soon after the occurrence of the abnormal situation, the flight crew became cognizant of depressurization of the airframe, and nonetheless, the flight crew did not put on the oxygen masks up to the last second. So they concluded that they did establish depressurization? Yeah, weird. Apparently, but I think the only reason they were somewhat cognizant of that is because of that, the R5 door warning. Yeah, but... uh, uh, There's a whole checklist that they should have run, and they didn't. They didn't do any of it, yeah. I don't know, it just blows my mind. It's just there's so many things weird there. I argue with that conclusion, at least a little bit. Yes. And they do say about the oxygen masks... And they're not putting it on, and it just says, the reason, however, could not be clarified. I mean, I think it's safe to say hypoxia. Yeah, it must have been. Must have been. They concluded that after the occurrence of the abnormal situation, the aircraft, <laughs> without making an emergency descent, continued flight for about 18 minutes at an altitude of more than 20,000 feet. So they never did that emergency descent either. Nope. Even knowing all this, they stayed above 20,000 feet. That's another reason I don't think that they were fully cognizant they must not of the been. depressurization. Because it's one of the basic tenets that you learn in flying. Yeah, absolutely. No pressurization, get down to where you can breathe. Yep. And nope, they stayed above 20,000 feet for 18, 18 minutes. minutes. It's and crazy. that by itself, I'm surprised they didn't become unconscious. Yeah. Yes. 
It is conceivable that the reason the emergency descent was not made during this period, regardless of the intention expressed by the flight crew to make an emergency descent, was that they were devoted to the control action to stabilize the flight attitude. However, the definite reason could not be determined. So they think they were just too fixated on controlling the airplane period. I think they were more worried about the boom than they were about what it entails. They also Yeah, that's They also claim that it could have been hypoxia that kept them from making this decision. It's so hard to say because hypoxia can make you do so many different things. It's like it's kind of the same effect as if you're drunk. People are pretty unpredictable in that state of mind. Mm -hmm. Yes. So now we're going to talk about something interesting that I kind of glanced over in the story, but I mentioned it briefly if you caught it. You say, thereafter, a gear-down operation was conducted. The aircraft entered into a descent and the fugoid motion subsided. When the aircraft descended to an altitude of about 7,000 feet, the flight crew noticed the aircraft was approaching mountains. As soon as they raised engine power immediately, the aircraft would have been brought into an unstable flight condition again, being accompanied by fugoid motion and Dutch roll motion. So an interesting thing happened, because they were actually, the crew were actually aware of this, and they did the right action, but as they were getting lower, they decided to drop the landing gear hoping that it would stabilize the airplane. Which it did to an extent. It did. It actually nearly stopped the fugoid for a moment. And this actually was also proven in the DHL. Yeah, they did the same thing. They did the same thing. They dropped the gear and the airplane stabilized because it caused enough drag to keep the airplane from doing this fugoid. So the landing gear actually did nearly help them. But then when they were getting close to the mountains, they kind of freaked out, put in a lot of power, and the airplane began its fugoid again. Well, not only that, but their airspeed was low, which is why they freaked out, and they weren't near anywhere where they can land. Unlike the DHL flight, where they were right next to the airport they were intending on landing at, they could afford to drop their gear and have that additional drag and decreased airspeed. Right, yeah. This did not have that luxury. Right, exactly. I think they did it prematurely. They should have... First of all, they should have just tried landing at Nagoya, and they should have waited until they were on final... They just made a lot of bad decisions, and I think a lot of it has to do with hypoxia. It just has to. Hard to say, but that's all I can think. All right, handful more here. They concluded that it is considered that passengers and crew members in the fore and mid-fuselage were all instantaneously killed by the shock, estimated as much as 100 Gs. Over 100, over 100 Gs. Gs. As well as the total destruction of structures of the fore and mid-fuselage at the time of the crash. Now, that said... It is estimated that humans can endure about up to 25 Gs in a forward motion. Yes, and survive. So 100 Gs, not no. going to happen. And all those people in the forward and mid part of, the, part of the fuselage did not survive. That said, they concluded that four persons survived this accident, but they were all seriously injured. All of them were seated at the aft portion of the aft fuselage and were con- considered to have been subjected to tens of G's, but they were able to escape death miraculously. The conceivable reason would be that their seating attitude, way to fasten the belt, status of damage to the seat, status of substance surrounding their body, etc., at the time of the collision, chance to help buffer the impact, and that they were less subjected to collision with dispersed internal substances of the fuselage. This is a long way of putting that where they were seated, they just got lucky basically that none of the fuselage struck them none of the damage really struck them but they were also only subjected to tens of g's because most of the fuselage ahead of them impacted first impacted first and actually slowed their impact 
Now, there is a myth floating around on the internet that the tail is the safest place to be during a crash. And it's actually not. The, in this instance, pure happenstance, yes. But as we've proven in multiple flights, it's not a guarantee. Nope. Asiana, that was the worst place to be sitting. And further, there's actually no evidence that there is a single place in any particular airplane that is actually safer than another. So don't subscribe to that myth. Nope. Not middle, not back, not forward, not middle, left, right. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. It depends on the accident itself, and what happens. how fast the plane is going, where the plane's going to hit, whether or not you're in a brace position, etc., etc., etc. If the et airplane blo- broke up in flight. There's so many things. It just doesn't matter, ultimately. They conclude that it is acknowledged that rescue activities were carried out to the best with close coordination of organizations concerned which participated in the activities, although they were confronted with extreme difficulties. I argue that this is completely false. 110% false. And actually, so did the Mayday episode. The Mayday episode, they explained how, when the accident happened, as a matter of fact, the U.S. Air Force at Yokota offered, and they were on standby, ready to go, ready to go do their search and rescue at the moment that the airplane disappeared from radar. And they waited because, ultimately, it's Japan. They have authority. And Japan never called them. They told them they offered their services and they were ready to go. And Japan never called them. And then further, Japan actually really screwed up because all the different organizations that were doing the search and rescue, including Japan Air Self-Defense, the police, and the many other rescue organizations, fire, everything, were all feuding. Not one of them could make a decision, which is why they didn't go to the, the wreckage site that night. This was arguably one of the biggest mistakes in this entire accident was the fact that they just didn't get there when they needed to. And yes, it was going to be tough, but ultimately, they should have done it. Well, and they shouldn't have assumed that no one survived. So they're arguing that there was a lot of close coordination with all these organizations, but actually even in the Mayday episode, that they, they said that there was too much conflict between all the organizations that it made it impossible for it to and be And it organized. cost people lives. People died. People died because of this. It's infuriating, actually, how poorly that went. That's it for the conclusions. Now for a cause. It doesn't say probable cause. It just says cause. Cause. Verbatim. With any errors I find in grammar, I'm still saying it verbatim because that is what I promise. Yep. It is estimated that this accident was caused by deterioration of flying quality and loss of primary flight control functions due to rupture of the aft pressure bulkhead of the aircraft and the subsequent ruptures of a part of the fuselage tail, vertical fin, and hydraulical flight control systems. Grammar is terrible. I'm not laughing at the cause. Yeah. Please don't mistake me. The reason why the aft pressure bulkhead was ruptured in flight is estimated to be that the strength of the said bulkhead was reduced due to fatigue cracks propagating at the spliced portion of the bulkhead's webs to the extent that it was unable to endure the cabin pressure in flight at that time. The initiation and propagation of the fatigue cracks are attributable to the improper repairs of the said bulkhead conducted in 1978, and it is estimated that the fatigue cracks having not be found in the later maintenance inspection is contributive to their propagation, leading to the rupture of the said bulkhead. Of the having not be found. Okay, it's better than turtles <laughs> and electricity. Electricity. Period. I will never give that up. I will. I still have absolutely zero idea what electricity <laughs> was about 
It or was just the a thing. Turtles. Or the Can turtles. Can we make a shirt that's just turtles and electricity? Yes. Thank you. Turtles. Electricity. electricity. <laughs> With an exclamation point, by the way. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> no, I think it was just a period. I think it was just a period, but that's just, yeah. I just thought it was great. Okay, so they actually didn't have a whole lot of recommendations, even though it's pages and pages of it. I don't go through most of them because oh, it's, thank God. it's literally repeated over and over and over again to different organizations. So we're going to cover most of those once. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Much appreciated. So they make most of these recommendations to the FAA, to Boeing, to JAL, and to the organization in Japan. The CAB, The CAB. Actually. Yes. Not the same CAB as Not we've discussed. the same CAB. So, yeah, just know that they make most of these to that effect. They recommend a design change to the empennage. Measures should be taken so that the empennage section of the Boeing 747 and 767 will be protected against catastrophic failure in the event that a significant pressure buildup occurs in the normally unpressurized empennage. The reason that one reads so well is because that one was written by the NTSB. LOL. (laughs) (laughs) As was this one. Modification of the design of the hydraulic systems. Design modifications should be made so that the integrity of all four hydraulic systems will not be impaired in the event that a significant pressure buildup occurs in the normally unpressurized empennage. So, so I'm, sorry. Sorry. Call Fuck. back to U8232, where it's like, let's have some redundancy so that if one of them goes out, all four of them don't go out. And let's not yes. have them all route to the same spot. Place? Yeah. So. Yes. What I was going to say is, I don't know if this went into effect on the 747 before UA-232, but I can pretty righteously assure you that although the UA-232 incident was just recommended probably to Douglas and the DC-10 in particular, it was probably implemented across the entire worldwide fleet of all aircraft. Yes. It's one of those things where the companies went, you know what? We should look at that. Yes, this you're was really right. not smart. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> this was this was dumb. We'll yeah. fix it. We'll fix it. If it was going to happen, it's going to happen. Every yeah. every eventuality, right? What's the uh, what's the rule for that? Murphy's Murphy's law. Is it Murphy's law? Yeah. Where if it can happen, it will happen. Yeah. You lead everything like through one place, and inevitably, that's the one place that eventually will get hit. Yes. This this won't happen. No yes, way. Yes, it yes, will. Murphy's it will. law. Yep, Murphy's law. Reevaluation of the fail-safe validity of the domed aft pressure bulkhead. Reevaluation should be made of the design of the aft pressure bulkhead of the 747 and 767, and tests be made to confirm their fail-safe validity. Yeah, don't make assumptions when making fail-safes. Nope. You can't afford to make assumptions. Right, exactly. We, we always say, never assume. Yep, that's a motto in aviation. Evaluation of the procedures to repair the aft pressure bulkhead. The current repair procedures of Boeing 747 and 767 aft pressure bulkheads should be evaluated to ensure that the repairs do not affect the fail-safe concept. Pretty straightforward. Revision of the inspection program for the aft pressure bulkhead. In reference to the aft pressure bulkhead, an inspection program beyond the usual visual inspection should be established to detect the extent of possible multiple site fatigue cracking. So, Can confirm this happened. Yes, absolutely. Actually, they have a whole thing about later in this about what was changed and... All of these were done, actually, by the way. So I'm going to go into that a little bit here, because we've talked about it so many times, including Mm -hmm. for UA-232. There are 
non-destructive inspection techniques that go way further in depth than visual inspection. Yes. The most prominent of this is ultrasonic inspections. Yep. Basically, you send ultrasonic waves, just like you would like if someone's pregnant or whatever. Mm-hmm. You want to look at the insides you, to detect anomalies. You send an ultrasonic signal, and it bounces back and t- gives you information. Well, when the signal comes back, if there's a crack, it's di- obviously different than if it's just a single whole chunk of metal. Yep. And so, and you can also find cracks that aren't on the surface that you for sure can't detect visually. Right. Other variations of this, there's eddy current inspections, there's fluorescent penetrant inspections, all these kinds of things that help you detect without destroying the part, because you don't want to do that, but it's also more in-depth than visual inspection. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my miniature TED Talk. (laughs) So here's the really interesting thing. This isn't just a recommendation. This was actually a requirement. Oh. This became... Basically, in they a, can do that in AD. Well, here's the thing: the oh. FAA directed oh. U.S. operators of the Boeing 747 and the Boeing Company to make the following modifications and inspections. The important one here: the vertical fin access cover installation. What does this actually? To install within six months a structural cover for the opening within the empennage, which provides access to the vertical fin. To prevent destruction of the empennage structure due to the significant pressure buildup in the empennage. This is a quote-unquote... Bulkhead. Well, this is a structural cover, as in they wanted it to be like a maintenance access, but it would actually also act as a pressure release valve. Okay. I can get behind that. In the event that all the pressure comes rushing out the back end of the airplane, it needs somewhere to go that doesn't involved destroying the back end of the airplane. Yeah, you know. So this was actually a really valuable one, if you ask me, and the FAA required this super close after this accident. Well, and I imagine that this is would have been a structural weakness and not just the 747. Yeah, yep. Correct. This could have probably happened on any jet airliner. Yep, but it happened on this one. So they were like, did. you know... Let's, Let's look not at this. do that. Yeah. Yep. Modification of the hydraulic systems. <clears throat> Again, redundancy. Make <laughs> yep. sure everything doesn't run through one place. Yep. The FAA initiated with the Boeing Company in September 1985 a study on the modifications necessary to prevent loss of functions of the hydraulic systems following major structural failure of Boeing 747. This work is still under progress, hence the DC-10 later. <clears throat> UA-232. But indications are that functions of the elevator, ailerons, and spoilers could be secured by installing a fuse before the number four hydraulic system where the hydraulic lines enter the vertical stabilizer. The Boeing company has issued a service bulletin which provides for installation of the fuse on a number four hydraulic system. And the SB is planned to begin or to become an FAA directive. Yeah, McDonnell Douglas probably just didn't get the memo. Yeah, they didn't do anything with this, but Boeing did at the time. So, yeah, the whole thing was basically just to close whatever hydraulic system they could so that it wouldn't be lost. Up to the summer of 1986, the improvement of facilities at the Tokyo Airport office where the Search and Rescue Center is located and the communications network among organizations concerned was completed, and the necessary staff was increased. Furthermore, on August 7, 1986, a joint training was carried out by the Civil Aviation Bureau and organizations concerned. This is important. This is where they start to get into the whole, yes, there was conflict among all these organizations, and they needed to figure it out. So they made one central command, basically, 
in Tokyo. And they carried out joint rescue operations, these training operations, with all the organizations involved. Because that couldn't happen again. And it did happen during the worst single aircraft accident in history. Just... Awful. Yes, horrible. And people died because of it. Yep. Because of bureaucratic bullshit. Yep. Blunt assumptions and assuming no one would survive and being, I, I don't want to say lazy, but not going to the but crash site because it's being, hard to get yeah, to it. Not being thorough. Yes. Like, uh, there's a bunch of flames. No one survived that. I don't it's see fine. anyone moving. Like, if someone was alive, would they be moving? Also, right. they're inside the plane. So, would you see them even if they were moving? Well, except the girl on the tree. Yeah, I mean. Well. But also, the plane was destroyed into many billions of little pieces. So, normally, would there be a lot of survivors? Probably not, but you still have to check. You have to be thorough, because who knows? Right. I only have one more, and it's very similar. Further enhancements is desirable of search and rescue capabilities through periodical enhancements of trainings, etc., pursuant to agreements which have been concluded among organizations concerned to ensure prompt and effective search and rescue activities in an emergency. Just literally working together, figuring out what how concept. to work together <laughs> and enhance these trainings so that they Let's can actually work just do that better. as a team instead yep. of working against each other. So maybe. Maybe it's a little bit easier. So Just this maybe this was a hefty one because there were so many things involved with this, so many layers to why this just went so wrong. bad. Yeah. Yes. In some ways, I feel like we didn't do it justice, at least in the story, kind of depicting the mass chaos that was in the cabin. And part of that is because it was a lot, and it's a lot to try to put into an episode like this. So if you do want to see a more accurate depiction of that kind of thing. Um, go find the Mayday episode. It's intense. I had to stop a couple of times. I mean, yeah, it is intense. And I mean, I can't imagine going through this. And you had to deal with 30 minutes, which I'm sure felt like an eternity. Well, and you have the plane moving in a weird oscillation It's a roller pattern, coaster. And yeah. you have the masks coming down, and people don't know what's going on. And it's just, even just thinking about it and not being a passenger feels chaotic. Yeah. Now, put yourself in the seat of a plane and have this happen. Like, well, and all the while, like, you're writing letters to loved ones like, hey, I love you. I'm sorry that dinner last night was, like, our last one. Yeah. Right. Like. Awful. Ugh. So. so this was on a, that note. This was a heavy one. This was a lot. But a big one. Yeah. And very pertinent to many others that we've covered. Yeah. We called this, what, the. The uh, Avengers? The Avengers of accidents because it conglomerated a bunch of our. UA-232, 2003 DHL, Helios. Yep, and I'm sure there's a handful more we could have incorporated into yeah, this. Yeah, like British Airways Flight 9 with the oscillation yep. pattern. Yep. They did the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, this happened before some of the other ones even happened. Yeah. This was a precursor to UA-232 and was relevant to UA-232. Which Absolutely. is why UA-232 wasn't 100% casualty. And some people survived it because the pilot, one of the pilots that was helping out, studied this flight and Thank understood God he did. asymmetric power. Yep. So that was Japan Airlines 123. Mm -hmm. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. Sorry for if you hear some of the chaos in the background. Poor Milo. He's just being dramatic. He's, he's a just, puppy. He's just being a puppy. He's being a puppy. We're working on it. You may hear some stuff like that in the future. Just be prepared because he. 
He, he can be up here with us as long as the cats aren't up here. But when he starts chewing on Our us, feet? <laughs> yeah. yeah. If he chews on something else, it's fine. But when he's chewing on us, not so great. And then he won't. He'll just like transfer between us two. Yep. To like chew on each of us. And then these so. two get mad, and I get panicky. So <laughs> it was Sorry. more just discipline than mad. I wasn't mad. Yeah. I just I wasn't that mad. Didn't want him to chew on me. Right. <laughs> so. Thanks so much for putting up with that. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you want to be a patron, remember you can go on our website and look up that, or you can look us up on Patreon. Either way, we'll pull up. Uh, you do get free merch with that. You yep. also get other like discounts on merch. You get other benefits that are strictly to Patreon. So if Lots you of extra content. We yeah. produce a lot of extra if content on If you need extra stuff to listen practice. to, we got you, boo. We got your back. Go ahead, check it. And you can check out everything that's included. You just can't listen to it. Yep. So Miranda, you can see what's included in the Miranda episodes. You can see all the post episodes, the blooper reels, etc. Right. We literally do at least a minimum of one to one for every episode we produce. Oh, yeah. Live, we do one extra piece of content for you to listen to and then some. Yes. So there you go. If you need more stuff. That's where you go. Check out the merch site as well. Anything on there is great and amazing. We have so turtles. many of the stuff. Turtles. We, Electricity. I, I will, Electricity. You're going to have to remind me. I was going to do a puppy t-shirt too. I totally forgot. I'm working on it. <laughs> Friends, it's this fine. week is like hell week for me. Yep. So Start a school. Yeah. And like I'm working at night and all this other stuff. So we're, next week will be a better day. Yeah. <laughs> better yeah. time. So... Anyway, if, if there's anything on there that you guys want, let us know. There was already one person who asked for something, and I did it for him that day. So, thank you again for listening. Have a safe and wonderful week, and we will catch all of you next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.